your Bibles, please turn to Mark chapter 6. We live in a world where the people at the top can't really be trusted. In the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon himself writes that the existence of oppression and unrighteousness in a world like ours shouldn't surprise us. The reason for that is that everybody has to report to somebody. Everyone is trying to get their piece of the pie and preserve their own interests. And the higher up we go on the ladder, the more self-seeking and self-centered we become. It's no surprise then that the poor, those at the bottom, or the marginalized, are oppressed. That those who are at the top rule over those at the bottom. This is the reality of earthly authority. It's never absolute. It's always dependent. We talked about this several weeks ago when we try to describe the kind of authority Jesus has, actual and absolute authority. It isn't dependent on anyone or anything, and as such, it's completely unique. Such authority in our world belongs exclusively to Jesus. In the middle of chapter 6 of Mark's Gospel this morning, we see how this works in action as we get a picture of two two. Kings, We get a perfect illustration of the difference between dependent authority and independent authority. One gives life, the other takes it. One is true, one is a sham. Our hope for salvation this morning is in the fact that Jesus cannot be swayed, that he only does his Father's will, that he has no need to be afraid of anybody or anything. In the story of Jesus Christ, we not only find out what God is actually like, we find out what human beings are actually like. We find out what it would be like in our world if we got what we wanted, if we got to rule, if we were able to run our world and be our own kings. And so nowhere is the deadliness of human authority demonstrated more clearly than it was in the death of Jesus Christ. That kind of authority gets people killed, literally. It oppresses, it's unjust and unrighteous and inconsistent and unstable. As we see in the murder of Jesus' forerunner, even the prophet John the Baptist this morning, leading up to Jesus' death, human authority can be swayed completely with life in the balance by the desires of our flesh in the moment. We are safest when Jesus is the King. Let's pray and we'll begin. Father, we thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ. God, watch over my soul and my mouth as I speak this morning. Please help me to speak the truth. Do a miracle in me that this might be accomplished. Lord, I pray for everyone that is here that you will open the eyes of their hearts to see their ears to understand and believe what we find out here about our Lord Jesus Christ. We ask and pray these things in His name. Amen. Let me read verses 7 through 13 of chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, there's a pew Bible in front of you, or I think there's a, there is an insert in the bulletin. It says, And He called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. 
And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. So here at the beginning of the third major phase of Jesus' public ministry, the central theme of Mark continues to be the authority of Jesus as the one who brings the kingdom of God. A part of this theme, or tied into this theme, is the increasing conflict Jesus faces with the religious leaders in Israel and, interestingly, the increasing spiritual dullness of his own disciples. The way these seven verses here are framed lets us know what Mark wants to accomplish here. He's narrating the expansion of Jesus' ministry through his disciples. At this point in their process of becoming his disciples, he's sending them out to do what he himself has been doing. He commands them, if you notice this, to simply reciprocate his ministry, casting out demons, healing the sick, and calling people to repentance since the kingdom of God was breaking into the world. In verse 7, Mark only says he sent them out and gave them authority over unclean spirits. But we find in verses 12 and 13 that this was Mark's shorthand way of describing the totality of what they did. Proclaim that people should repent, cast out demons, anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Jesus gave them authority to do what he did, and they did it. And I think Mark emphasizes their authority over unclean spirits in verse 7 to highlight the fact that in the coming or in the kingdom of God in Jesus, Satan's kingdom was being overthrown. This is something Mark wants his audience to know, his persecuted, marginalized audience to know very clearly. Not only does Jesus himself have the authority to preach and to heal and to cast out demons, he can cast or he can grant this authority to others. And it's not just like he's delegating authority. It's his authority that he gives to others. So he isn't following a chain of command like he's a spoke on the wheel. He's giving out what he has to whom he decides to give it. He sends them out in twos, no doubt for support and protection and all this, but also because... In the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy 17, 6, 19, 15, and Numbers 35, verse 40, two witnesses were required to confirm a testimony as true in court. Jesus wants it clear that he speaks the truth. And in verses 8 and 9, we get a glimpse of what this authority implies for the ministry of these disciples, that they will have what they need as they go. What's clear from his instructions Overall is that they're to travel very lightly. They aren't to be burdened with anything, not burdened with the things of the world, trusting God, dependent on the hospitality of others so they can take the clothes on their back, the sandals on their feet and a walking stick. They can't take provisions like bread or extra clothes or extra money to purchase such things. He even says not to take two tunics, a long, uh, you know, shirt-like undergarment that was worn next to the skin. Now, they would have rarely taken two, or people would have rarely taken two anyway on a journey, but this was more of a way of saying, don't take an extra one, not even for extra warmth at night. It could also be that in some way Jesus was echoing the command given to the Israelites prior to the Exodus in Exodus 12, to be ready to leave with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. In this sense, the disciples are participating with Jesus in a new exodus. But these are such common items of the day that they probably in that moment wouldn't have made the connection between the exodus and what 
they were doing. But as they travel, they're dependent on the hospitality of others. Hospitality was one of the highest values in the Middle East. And as they go, they are going to need it because that's how they're going to get basically everything they need. Jesus has priorities, we're learning. The mission he's calling his people to is crucial, it's urgent, and it's costly. Jesus envisions two responses for his disciples as they go. Only two, one positive, one negative. If they're welcomed into a home, they should stay there in that home, regardless of who it is, until they leave that area for more mission. That shows Jesus is concerned not only for the motive of the missionaries, but also the fellowship and unity of the new community he's building. Because the natural tendency for travelers would be to move up the social ladder. So if a better offer came with nicer accommodations from wealthier people, they might be tempted to move up to better things from wealthier people. And Jesus is saying, don't do that. Right? Don't show such sinful favoritism. This is the danger that you can build in or that can be built into preachers either from their flesh or from seminary even maybe to constantly be trying to move up. Right? You you start out in the small church and if you pay your dues you get the medium sized church and if you pay your dues there you get the large sized church and if you're really flashy and really something then maybe you get the mega church. It's always again I think I mentioned it before but it's always really amazing that God never calls a man to a smaller church for less money. Have you ever noticed that? It's always moving up the ladder. Jesus doesn't want this type of favoritism being shown in his mission. He says, don't do this. Jealousy will result. Disunity will result from this. Greed of any kind would run completely counter to Jesus' exhortation to remain dependent on God to provide everything. He wanted his disciples to remain, notice that, in a position of need and dependence all the time. Some would welcome them then, but then some would reject them. And in that case, in Israel, during the days of Jesus' visitation, the command was simple. If you're not welcomed, if you're not listened to, then leave and shake the dust off your feet. That's probably related to a tradition the rabbis of that time had to shake the dust of foreign lands off their feet and their garments when they returned to the Holy Land. They didn't want it polluted even by Gentile dust, Gentile sand. When the disciples did this, in essence, what they'd be doing is declaring that the place where they were, were rejected was unclean and defiled even in Israel. The gesture is completely one of disassociation. Leave that place to suffer the consequences of its rejection, Jesus is telling them. In Luke's account of this same commission in his gospel, Jesus tells them, he adds to this and says, it will be more bearable for the day of Sodom than for that town in judgment. Towns where the disciples were rejected. So the time is fulfilled. In verses 12 and 13, the kingdom of God is so close at hand that the king is now giving his authority to his followers to proclaim it also. So it's spreading. The disciples of Jesus in Israel and the church's growth in Acts to the nations became such a powerful force for changing the world precisely because they were not acting in their own authority, but in the authority of Jesus Christ. That authority is so pervasive, it doesn't have to be accompanied by the world's help to expand, to grow, to spread. We today are jars of clay 
also. We are far from perfect, but it is the flawed, needy, dependent nature of God's people that proves the perfect, sufficient, saving authority of Jesus to the world. This commission to these disciples was for their time and their ministry in Israel when Jesus walked the earth. This is not the same commission that comes to us, but we can take the same cues from it, right? Learning how simplicity keeps us from being burdened down too much to show God's provision, uh, that we must depend on God rather than our own talents and resources, that we shouldn't be showing partiality in Christian ministry, but be where we are, be present, ministering where we are. The church is a community of redeemed people set up to help one another accomplish the same mission for the sake of his name and the salvation of the lost. This is the kind of king Jesus is. This is what he does with his authority. His authority is exercised to save people's souls and care for their needs while they're on the earth. But this is not the only kind of king there is. And very interestingly, because We have to wonder how it fits into the flow. Mark sandwiches the following story that begins in verse 14 between Jesus sending out his disciples in verses 7 through 13 and then three more scenes of his power and authority in verses 32, 56. So let me pick it up in verse 14. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. So we find out there, oh, John the Baptist has died. But others said he is Elijah, and others said he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. This is the only episode in Mark's gospel that doesn't directly concern Jesus, or is not directly about him. Why does Mark include it, and why does he include it here? I think... We're meant to see the authority of Herod, the king in this time and place, against the backdrop of the authority of Jesus in the middle of images of what his authority does. The Herod mentioned here is Herod Antipas. He was the son of Herod the Great. Tetrarch, which means ruler of a fourth or ruler of a fourth part, which eventually came to mean a lower level ruler, uh, actually below the status of a king, but that is how he was known at the time as King Herod, Herod Antipas was the Tetrarch of Galilee and Perea from 4 B.C. to 39 A.D. This is the Herod before whom Jesus would stand when he was on trial in the Gospel accounts. And Herod has heard, it says, of the ministry of Jesus, his power, his miracles, his message. And he's heard that it's beginning to gain momentum. It's beginning to to spread and gain speed. If other people are now replicating that ministry, there's a king in the area it's like, oh man, there's, there's something else building, something else growing. Well, what does he feel as a result of that, given the words of the text? He feels threatened. He feels nervous. And we'll see what rulers do when they feel threatened as we read this passage. We find out here that John the Baptist, the voice of one crying in the wilderness of whom Isaiah prophesied in Mark 1, has died. Specifically, he was murdered. He was beheaded by Herod. And now Herod is afraid that he's come back from the dead. What people have been saying about Jesus, that miraculous powers were to work in him, that maybe Elijah has been raised from the dead, uh, or one of the prophets of old, maybe even the ghost of John the Baptist himself has come back from the dead. That's precisely what Herod thinks has happened. 
in verse 16, what would make him concerned about this? Because he knows he shouldn't have killed him. Herod doesn't just fear retribution from John. Herod knew he had done an evil thing. Deep down inside, I think Herod knows he's going to answer for it and probably answer to God for it. That's the story that we read beginning in verse 17. I'll read down through verse 29. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias, that's the wife, had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. Love to be so powerful and rich that you can throw your own birthday parties. Verse 22. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, what a dance, right? And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom, which is hyperbole, but it was an expression. And she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? How did she know to do that? Why did she do that? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. She's sweet. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But, no, the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, He did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went in and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. Here. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of this, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. So Herod Antipas... Divorced his first wife, who was the daughter of King Aretas IV of Nabatea, and married Herodias, who, by the way, was the wife of his brother, Herod Philip. He liked her more. And it's good to be the king. Right? Actually, you know what? I want her instead. My brother's wife. So Herodias, of course, the lady, divorces Herod Philip to marry Herod Antipas. Well, in Israel, this was a... Huge issue. This this would have been uh, forbidden in the Old Testament law, for one thing. Marriage to a husband's brother was only permitted in the case of Leverite marriage when the uh, brother had died without any offspring. So Jewish law didn't allow this, but Roman law did. And so Herodias and Herod were off the hook as they saw it. Again, there's always a loophole for those with enough power, right? Enough money. John the Baptist had criticized the marriage of Herod. Because he had married his brother's wife, so Herod had him arrested and thrown in prison for it. He had the power to do that if he didn't like something you said. Right? I'll just throw you in prison. Well, hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. Herodias 
hated John the Baptist and wanted to kill him, just like Jezebel had hated Elijah for killing the prophets of Baal and swore to kill him, but she did not have the authority to do so. And the one who did, Herod, knew that John the Baptist was a righteous and holy man. He would become intrigued but confused when he spoke, but he liked him. So Herodias is stuck. She doesn't have enough authority to kill him. Until one day, when Herod Antipas, through his own birthday party, all the nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee, the Herodians, the Jewish people that were on the side of Herod, most likely. So all the king's horses, all the king's men are invited for a little shindig up at the palace. And an opportunity finally arises for Herodias. Well, what did it? Right? What swayed the mind of King Herod? To finally go ahead and order the execution of a prophet he was afraid of and also actually kind of liked. Promises of more wealth, uh, promises of greater rule, uh, uh, you know, solution to political problems. No, no, no. Uh, a, a dancing girl. That did it. A dancing girl. You know, I watches her dance and just, you know what, I love you so much. Would you like half of my kingdom? You can have whatever you want. Ask me whatever you want, and I'll give it to you. Look, look at 22 again. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. Could have asked for whatever they wanted. The head of John the Baptist. We don't know the girl's age, but we can assume from what happens here that her dance would have been erotic in nature, which would have been no surprise in Herod's court. Very common. She was probably a young woman, not a young girl, because believe it or not, Herod did actually have some standards, and it's very unlikely that a severed head would have been handed to a little girl. So at least it's not that, which would have been even more awful, but it's still awful. We also know this was probably a young woman because the daughter seems very well aware of the situation with her mother, very well aware of court intrigue and what Herod has just committed himself to. So she goes to her mom. When she goes back to Herod in verse 25, notice this, she embellishes. Herodias just said, I want the head of John the Baptist. Her daughter comes back and says, I want the head of John the Baptist on a platter. So this is not only going to be an execution, but a mutilation and a humiliating one at that. The head of the prophet will be like a party trinket for Herod and his guests, all because she knew how to move her hips. Right? Don't miss this, beloved. It's not a throwaway story. The authority of men can be swayed by a woman's body, which means the world, men and women, are in big trouble. Big trouble. That's literally all it takes. And again, gentlemen, do not blame women for our lust. God did not do something sinful in the way he created the female body. The point here is not the scheme of these women, this mother and her daughter. The point is Herod and Jesus. 
right? Herod and Jesus. What happens when people in power can be swayed by a dance? Notice the dependency, the inner workings of Herod's mind here and why, even though he was the tetrarch, he's the king, that he had to do this. He, he was backed into a corner. He didn't have a choice. How does a king get backed into a corner? I thought he was the king. He already feels threatened. We know he's on edge from the beginning of the passage. He has to do what he, is, what he has to do to hold on to his power. In verse 26, he was exceedingly sorry. He couldn't have imagined that would be what she'd asked for. But he'd made an oath in front of his guests. He's stuck. And again, I thought he was the king. Yeah, but even kings have to play the game. Remember this. That's part of what Solomon was talking about back in Ecclesiastes. Herod cannot break his oaths in front of people. He can't look weak. He can't look dishonest. So despite how he felt and the fact that he didn't want to, immediately in verse 27, he gives the order and the instructions are carried out to the letter because he's the king. The head of John the Baptist is given to the girl on a platter who probably gleefully took it to her mom since it did come on a platter. Look, look. Thankfully, John's disciples were able to take his body and lay it in a tomb, but John the Baptist is gone because Herod is an immoral, wishy-washy, pathetic ruler who took the easy way out so he wouldn't look bad instead of just putting his foot down and doing what was right. You know, unlike God's prophet who had spoken the truth. There is an underlying thing here coming off the heels of commissioning these men to go out that if you're a prophet, if you speak for the Lord, this is what might happen to you. No wonder Herod was afraid that John the Baptist, as he understood it, might have come back from the dead. Beloved, there are two kinds of kings. Every other king and Jesus Christ. I know not every king has done this exact thing. And I know not every king or ruler is as immoral and evil as Herod Antipas. But I do know they're all human. And I know what Solomon says is true. There's always someone to please even for those in authority. Even if it's only to keep their authority. Which means those not in the position of that authority will always be at the mercy of those who are. And this is the way of the world. Herod had authority. The Romans occupied Israel. If there was an uprising, it could be fairly quickly and brutally put down. But it didn't even need to get that far here. Authority went out the window when a woman's body became too appealing for the king to think straight. If that's all it takes to sway a man from his will to rule and brutally execute a prisoner he doesn't even like or that he actually does like, what hope is there for those who need to actually benefit from authority? Beloved, at the end of the day, there is no hope. Not ultimately. Solomon goes on to say in Ecclesiastes 7, which is an amazing passage, he goes on to say that he might find one man in a thousand that could resist a woman who was bent on seducing him. I know this is very particular Maybe even a little uncomfortable. And again, I don't mean to make it seem as though this is the only thing that can seduce or sway a ruler. What, is, what it is, however, is a picture of the fact that anything 
can. Just think about that moment. Herod could have had whatever he wanted at any time. And in this one moment, this one girl dancing, who's his stepdaughter, by the way, completely takes over his mind. Completely. It doesn't take much. It doesn't take much. But this scene of Herod acting like this comes right on the heels and right on the cusp of another king's authority and what it is like and what it does. A king with actual and absolute authority who, remember, by the way, was also put to death by a self-seeking ruler who knew his victim was innocent but waffled under pressure and chose political expediency over justice. Mark gives us a picture of the true king who was a servant of people and a sham king who will kill people to save face. We see two kinds of authority and two kinds of kings. The authority Herod has is not like the authority of Jesus, beloved. Oh, he has authority, make no mistake, but it can be threatened. You can make Herod afraid. It can be taken away It can be lost, so there's no limit to the games kings like Herod must play. But, since Herod is a king, the pieces of the game he plays are usually going to be the people under his rule. Herod's authority depends on the approval and even on the agenda of others. His own wife got over on him by using her own daughter. And since Herodias didn't have authority either, what did she have to do to get her way? She had to sway. She had to work. And on and on and on it has always gone and always will go as long as the earth remains. Which means the center of humanity cannot hold if we are the kings. Because if it isn't lust, it's money or pride or power or just self-preservation. But the fact remains, human authority has to play the game to keep the throne. And since that's the case... People under human authority will always suffer and learn to play the game themselves so that they can take over, but then the cycle just starts again. We keep throwing leaders up. They keep falling down. Something comes out that ruins our opinion of them, if we're honest. Do we throw the baby out with the bathwater then and just have anarchy? No. Even the worst government wouldn't be as bad as anarchy. That's not the point here of shining a light on the inability and instability of human authority. It's not, well, well, then get rid of it. Just let us know that's not the answer. God has set up the authority structures of the world to achieve his purposes and carry out his will so that in some sense their failures, we would crave the only ones suitable to rule us and not destroy us or use us. The point is that even now, even in this horrible political climate in which we live, we are still not without hope for salvation. Of all the many things demonstrated in the death of John the Baptist and eventually Jesus himself, again, one of them is the horribly damaging potential of human authority. Notice what it does. Ultimately, it gets people killed rather than preserves lives. We see that. We've seen that in world history on a very large scale, right? Genghis Khan, uh, Stalin, Hitler, the, the big names that we know, the massive genocide, but it works everywhere. I mean, 
you don't have to be a conspiracy theorist to wonder sometimes on someone's death that, well, that was odd. You know, how did they, how did they shoot themselves in their sleep? You know, things like this, questions we ask that we wonder. But false authority that is dependent on other people to remain, it has to kill. It has to use its power to oppress. It destroys lives. It uses people. It hurts them. Herodias used her daughter here. Right? It hurts people. It makes people miserable. If authority can be threatened, if there's a fear in the one holding authority that it can be lost, at some point they're going to have to exert their strength to suppress those who doubt them or are against them. There's no limit to the lengths people will go that have that kind of authority to keep it. But true authority saves people. It serves with no doubt whatsoever about who's in charge. The reason Jesus is able to save so indiscriminately and completely and send us out as sheep in the midst of wolves and know that his mission will still be accomplished is very simple. He's never threatened. He's not going to lose when he loses. He's not going to die by dying. He's not going to be silenced by being silenced. What can you do to him? You kill him, he comes back. While the Herods of the world are scheming so as not to lose face and people are suffering brutal death as a result, what is Jesus doing? Jesus is sending out his followers to proclaim the kingdom has come and salvation is near without even needing to tell them to pack extra clothes. We are safest when Jesus is the king. No human being will be able to rule like this. Because no human being has what Jesus has. Jesus was confronted with all our sin, with all our blame. Jesus was handed a cup to drink. He didn't have to look around the room to see who was watching. Should I drink it? Should I? What's the end game for me if I, if I do this? What? He didn't go back on anything he'd said. So when the crucial moment came, he laid down his life willingly. He did not have to fear what will happen to my kingdom if I die. What, what, what piece do I need to play here? He knew God would raise him up. He knew that it was not possible for death to hold him. Beloved, do you know what that is? That's capital. That's capital. Jesus went farther than our sin could go in order to redeem us. He did not come to condemn the world, but to save it. Right? True authority doesn't have to do that. For one thing, it's all, the world was already condemned. What it didn't have was a savior. Only the one who actually holds all the power can give it all up to save his subjects and not lose an ounce of it. Do you want to be safe? Do you want to be safe? Well, Jesus doesn't promise long life. He promises eternal life. He doesn't promise that we'll bypass death. He promises that he'll raise us up. And Jesus holds all the cards. He has all the power. 
He has all the authority. And rather than use it to save face, he uses it to lose everything that you and I might be forgiven and clean and made new and made whole. And by it, God raises him from the dead so we don't submit to a memorial today. We submit to a king whom God has set on Zion that cannot be moved. Cannot be moved. People are only truly safe under the rule of Jesus. It doesn't mean we won't die. It means that death will not be death. So what can they do to us now? This is the impetus of all mission, beloved. That let them kill you, not a hair on your head will be harmed. Only Jesus can talk like that. Only Jesus. We remain in fear. We remain convinced that we have to play the game. Beloved, you and I are free from playing the game. We don't have to win. We don't have to preserve anything. We don't have to be justified by the world's courts. Just go. Love your neighbor. Love your family. Look to Christ You'll be fine. Jesus doesn't use women. That matters. Beloved, you can't trust men. Jesus doesn't use women. Jesus doesn't oppress the poor. Jesus doesn't act on impulse in the moment. Jesus isn't playing the game. He's not distracted from the people he rules. There's no reason to be. He's on His knees for us, interceding for us, day and night before the Father. Right? There's there's no fear. There's no threat. He's going to win. It's settled. He doesn't overlook even one of His subjects. Not one. Have you ever taught a class of kids? If there's more than one kid, you're going to lose control. Right? I mean, at some point in that hour, it's, it's, I mean, one of them still, that they play the game. They're, look over here, look over here. This one's over here lighting fires in the trash can, and it's, it's, there's nothing you can do. Right? Jesus is never, ever distracted. What a shepherd. Look, look, again, I know, I'm not trying to say that every leader is like Herod. I'm saying every leader is human. And at the end of the day, it doesn't mean throw the baby out with the bathwater. Don't submit to authority. No, Jesus commands us to submit to governmental authority until it tells us or commands us to disobey him. Up until that point, we obey. We pay our taxes. Right. Again, it's not authority that's the problem. It's us that is the problem. And there is a Savior in the midst of all this. Such a great Savior that I can, as Peter commanded the people under his charge, to honor the emperor when the emperor was trying to kill them. Beloved, again, why? Part of the reason why is because the emperor doesn't hold sway over our destiny. It doesn't matter what his last name is. It doesn't matter what party he belongs to. It doesn't matter if he's in his house or in the place of power to advance our interests or protect them or destroy them. It doesn't matter. Our king is Jesus and we are safe. And until we believe this, I don't think we can be the church he's calling us to be. Why send out people into a world to minister where there's rulers like Herod? Why? Why? Paul asks... Because Christians were suffering so much. He asks in Romans, 
I mean, we're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Does that, are we separated from his love? No, you're never separated from his love. What Jesus gives is indestructible, beloved. That's our hope. Our hope isn't in turning the tide of a nation. Our hope is in Christ who rules over the tides of the nations for good and evil, beloved. Jesus is a king, but Jesus is a savior and we aren't safe anywhere else.